0: Are roads public goods? And more fundamentally, what are public goods? Well, it turns out that a big part of the answer is transaction cost. This is Mike Munger, the Knower of Important Things, and this is Tidy C. I thought they'd talk about a system where there were no transaction costs, but it's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter, and it is costly to transact. Last week, I read a letter that we got here at the show. Are roads public goods? And since that's a question, and the answer to all questions is transaction cost, then what do public goods have to do with transaction costs? Well, let's take a step back for a minute. There's four different types of goods. Public goods, common pool resources, club goods, and private goods. Now, public goods are non-rival and non-excludable. If my consumption reduces the amount available to others, that's rival. So an apple is rival. If I eat it, you can't. National defense is non-rival. Another citizen or another 100,000 citizens doesn't reduce the amount available to others. So excludable means that the producer can withhold or deny consumption to someone who doesn't pay. I can prevent you from taking and eating my apple, so apples are potentially excludable. If you don't pay your taxes, I can't prevent you from being protected by national defense. So if a good is non-rival and non-excludable, it's a public good. So national defense is a canonical public good. Get it? Canon, canonical, national defense? That is comedy gold right there, I tell you. Well, suppose instead that a good is rival but non-excludable. In that case, it's a common pool resource of the sort worked on by the famous Eleanor Ostrom. Something like tuna fishing in the open ocean, which collapses the fishery. Each tuna that I take is now not available to other fishing boats. But tuna in the open ocean are not excludable because no one owns them. There may be international rules about taking certain catch limits or using certain equipment, but those rules are just not enforceable in international waters outside the control of any nation's jurisdiction. The federal budget is also a commons, where any majority that passes legislation can overfish the FISC causing out-of-control deficits. Well, third, suppose that a good is excludable but non-rival. Then it's a club good, of the sort worked on by the famous James Buchanan. Something like the swim and racket club in many neighborhoods or wireless internet. These are locally non-rival up to a point, and you can keep out free riders with an entry guard or password protection. If a good is rival and excludable at low transaction cost, then it's a public good. Apples are rival and excludable. So apples are private goods. One quick thing to mention, a system of property rights and enforcement of contracts is a very important part of any market system, but the reason is that a system of law and contract lowers the transaction cost of excludability. There are very few pure private goods because exclusion always requires some transaction costs. I have to list or agree on a price, charge the money, deliver the product, and enforce against forcible or fraudulent theft. Exclusion is all about transaction cost. in fact, all the way down. Saying that an apple is a private good assumes that there are background institutions, either in a sense of propriety, where we think we should keep our promises and not steal, or actual enforcement by a security agency to make excludability cheap compared to the value of the transaction. If the cost of exclusion is a substantial fraction of the value of the transaction, then it's not really a public good. There aren't really many pure public goods either. Calling something a public good is a trick to say you think that the state should use tax money to give you and your friends something that you want. Now, there's a lot written about this. One good source is an article by my friend Bruce Benson, long of Florida State University, on public goods. And there's an interesting article by Vaughn Baltzley on the misleading promiscuity of labeling things public goods by people who want to use public money for their own purposes. I'll put a link to both of those up on the show notes. So with that background, let's go back to the main question. Are roads public goods? Remember, public goods are non-rival and non-excludable. Now, congestion is a violation of non-rivalness, and obviously roads can get congested. More on that a little later. But about excludability, let's focus on that. Notice that it says excludable. It is possible to exclude, but only if the transactions costs are not high. To put it another way, If someone asks you if roads are public goods, the answer is, well, transaction costs. Excludability in roads depends entirely on transaction costs. It's obviously possible to have toll booths every quarter mile on every road with a person in the toll booth to collect quarters and dime for each small unit of distance that you drive. But in fact, the cost of collecting tolls would quickly overwhelm the value of using the roads. William Faulkner tells a story of what is, in effect, toll collection in The Reverse, in the chapter on mud farmers. This really is a problem of rent extraction, and we'll talk more about that in a later episode. But the problem with rents generally is transaction cost. Artificial rents or barriers create something like Frederick Bastiat's Negative Railroad, which we talked about last time. If you put a toll booth every half mile It's a lot like breaking up the railroad and requiring the people to transship, to take things off of one railroad car and put it on another as a way of creating jobs. But notice that there's no value that's being created by breaking it up that way. So the collection of the payment reduces the value of the activity. That means that the problem of excludability is not a technical problem. Notice that non-rivalness is really a technical feature of the good. If I eat the apple, it's not available for someone else. If, however, the cost of collecting the payment for the public good—if that is high or low—that's really just a function of transaction cost. You're likely used to paying a toll to go over a bridge. If you don't pay the toll, you can't cross the bridge, or the police come after you if you try to run through the toll booth. Innovations that have reduced the transactions cost of collecting tolls have made a huge difference in the answer to the question, are roads public goods? There was a famous study that showed more than 25% of the revenues collected by the Connecticut Turnpike in the Northeast United States were either used to pay the toll booth collectors or were used up by the dead or opportunity costs of people waiting in line. And there was a lot of waiting in line. The toll booths collected a quarter, 25 cents. There were toll booth barriers at Greenwich, Norwalk, Stratford, West Haven, Branford, Madison, Montville, Plainfield, and for a decade at Old Saybrook, the west end of the Baldwin Bridge over the Connecticut River. Cars had to wait in line for 20 minutes to pay 25 cents at each one of these stops. Think of the cost of that. We talked in a previous episode about the problem of surge pricing at Starbucks. Well, it was as if the Connecticut Turnpike was charging the sum of the 25 cents, okay, fair enough, But it was also charging people 20 minutes to sit and wait in line to pay that 25 cents. Sitting there idling, wasting gas, causing pollution, meant that the cost of collecting the fee was sharply reducing the value of the transportation that the road was providing. So the Connecticut Turnpike was converted to a free road in 1985. But a big part of the reason for that was that it was so expensive to collect money pay for the road and so the connecticut turnpike it was decided was non-excludable the costs of collecting to pay for the turnpike were too large but now we have easy pass instead of having to wait in line and stop and throw in a quarter or worse get change from a human being at the toll booth i can pass through quite quickly in the easy pass lane and my process through however many miles I go to use the turnpike, is recorded electronically and my account is charged. Now, I have an easy pass here in Raleigh, North Carolina, that we use for local toll roads. I recently used it in West Virginia. I've used it in New Jersey. It's very easy and cheap for me to be able to use a toll road and pay for it, which means that the cost of excludability has fallen dramatically. That's what I mean when I say excludability depends on transactions cost. What seems like a technical condition, the Samuelsonian public good conditions, are actually just a question of the transactions cost. Now, it's easy for a good to move from being a public good to being at least a club good. Now, I said that road congestion meant that roads were not public goods. But then I said that a swimming pool, a club good, was locally non-congested. What does that mean? Well, the difference is that a swimming pool is in one place. Having a few more people is usually not a problem for a pool. If the pool gets overcrowded, it's possible to build another pool at a slightly different place. And you can build as many pools as you need. They're all going to be locally non-congested. Roads, by definition, are not local. They're always a means for getting from one place to another. So that's what made Anthony Downs' famous observation so important. Roads will always be congested in equilibrium, in any place where there is growth, because people will make location decisions based on the cost of commuting. Roads can't be local, and so they're going to be congested. That means they are by definition not public goods. First, because it is now possible cheaply to exclude people from roads because of things like easy pass. But second because of problems of congestion. So it's an interesting question to ask if roads should be publicly provided. Relatively little of what government does is provide public goods. In fact, it would be an interesting research project for a grad student. What proportion of total government spending is devoted to the production of public goods? You could look at it for the United States. You could look at it for individual states and compare them. So you would have to define actual public goods based on non-rivalness and non-excludability, Because the usual story that we hear is, well, the government should provide public goods. Well, maybe, but the government's likely to do a whole bunch of other things also that voters decide are good for the public. What sort of other things does government do? Well, transfers, for example, which are not public goods. Parks are not public goods. Subsidies to agriculture, education are not public goods. All of those are excludable. Most of them are also rival. If I take a seat at the public opera, then it's not available for someone else. If my son or daughter takes a seat at the free public university, it's not available for someone else. There's a confusion between public goods and things that a majority of voters decide is good for the public. I had a discussion with the Planet Money people on NPR a few years ago about whether public radio is a public good. I'll put a link to that up in the show notes. The problem with deciding whether NPR is a public good is, well, Transaction costs. In this case, decision costs of the sort that are discussed by Buchanan and Tullock in their famous 1962 book, The Calculus of Consent. Suppose I have a stink bomb, a really smelly little canister that when you light it spews out an awful, sulfurous, rotten egg smell, and I set it off in a crowded basketball arena. Is that a public good? Well, is it rivalrous? No. Having one person smell the awfulness does not reduce the awful smell available to everyone else. Is it excludable? No, I can't prevent someone from smelling the stink bomb if they are inside the arena. Now, they might try to prevent themselves from smelling it with a gas mask, but that's a different thing. Either producer, can't stop them unless I require gas masks, in which case transactions costs such as dispensing and then wearing a mask so they can't see would be imposed. The point is that if something has the characteristics of a public good, it's non-rival in consumption and non-excludable in production, then we still have to decide, do we want that thing? National defense is a public good. If it's provided, the cost doesn't increase if there are new babies or new immigration that increase the population. But do we want it? Well, suppose we decide, yes, we want national defense. How much? We still haven't decided how much. There's still a public choice problem in deciding the level of public goods to provide. How much stink bomb do you want? Well, none, even though it's a public good. I'm supposing that you think that what is called national defense really means that President Obama and President Trump are ordering drone strikes on schools, kindergartens, and weddings in Afghanistan. Isn't that more like a stink bomb, if you have that view? Public radio is excludable because it could be encrypted. But encryption would be expensive. It would impose transaction costs. So maybe it is a public good over the range of production. But you still have to ask if it's like a stink bomb or drone strikes. Do we want public radio? Most of us don't. Some of us do. The problem with public goods is that people can free ride. So the rationale is we'll force them to pay to overcome the collective action problems. But what if drone strikes and Terry Gross saying, this is fresh air, are stink bombs to you? If you're forced to pay taxes to support those things, then you're a forced rider. We talked about the problem of being a free rider, but being a forced rider is also a problem. You're being obliged at gunpoint to give up resources to support things that are not public goods, but are public bads, like a stink bomb, in your opinion. So, are roads public goods? No, and the answer is transaction costs. It depends on how expensive it is to achieve excludability. For many people, roads are stink bombs. Building more roads means more driving and more damage to the environment, and of course paving over land that has other uses. Anthony Downs, the famous public choice and urban economist, always pointed out that building roads doesn't matter in equilibrium because congestion costs will always rise to the point where people make location choices based on traffic. Marchetti's Constant says that people will always locate to have a maximum commute of about half an hour. The only solution to this problem is tolls or variable congestion taxes. But that proves that roads are not public goods because congestion is a kind of peak load pricing since you have to wait in line when there's not enough road space. Again, the fact that roads are not public goods doesn't mean that they should be privately provided, but it does mean that we need to think about the level of transactions cost that is imposed by the problem of forced writing. That is, people are being forced to pay for a good not only that they don't value, but that they might oppose. Whoa, that sound means it's time for twedge. Here's this week's economics joke. An older woman is watching the news when a newscaster cuts in. Breaking news. We have reports of a car going the wrong way through heavy traffic on I-85. And the woman knows that her husband is traveling, so she calls him up. Honey, some idiot's driving the wrong way on I-85. Be careful, please. Her husband practically yells back into the phone. Whoa, thanks, sweetie, but it's not just one. There's hundreds of them. Well, obviously, it's him. He's the one driving the wrong way. So the reason why this not very funny economics joke is important for our subject of roads this week is that it involves transaction costs. Transaction costs encompass both problems of competition, where we have to worry about things like prisoner's dilemma in exchanges or enforcement in the case of free riding, but also coordination. So we'll talk more about the distinction between uh, cooperation, competition, and coordination problems later on. But what most people think about when they talk about transactions cost is this problem of coordination. And this week's economic joke raises that quite clearly. It's a problem if we don't all drive on the same side of the road. Now, most of the time, we can solve this problem by just announcing we'll all drive on the left and we're or we will all drive on the right. And the reason that this mostly solves the problem is there's very little incentive for us to deviate from that. What we need to do is just establish which side of the road we all drive on. In a competition prisoner's dilemma setting, any given individual may be better off in the short run if they cheat and don't pay after work has been done, for example. This kind of hold-up problem, where I get a better deal after the fact, is a big obstacle to doing business in many countries. But let's think about the coordination problem. One of the famous Nobel Prize winning economists that worked on the transactions cost question of coordination problems, like should we drive on the left or the right, was Thomas Schelling. He brought up uh, a Gedanken experiment, a thought experiment. Suppose you had to meet with someone in your city, but you could not communicate with them. Could you solve that problem? Suppose that neither of you can communicate in advance about when or where to meet. Do you think you could manage to show up at the same time in the same place? Well, if you both know the city and you both know that the other person also knows that you know the city, you actually have some shared resources, some culturally salient information about where it is that you might go to meet. So what Professor Schelling did was he took an informal survey. He asked his students the question, there's a stranger you've never met and you cannot communicate with. Both of you know that you have to meet tomorrow in this city and you both know the city. Well, it happened he was teaching in New York City, and many of his students tended toward the same answer. When they were posed this question, they would wait, they said that they would wait under the clock in Grand Central Station at 12 noon, hoping their partners had the same idea. Now, of course, it would be different for different cities. In Prague, in the Czech Republic, it might be at the statue of King Wenceslas up at the top of the square. And in fact, there is a saying in Prague that if you're lost or you just want to meet someone, it should be simple, they say, we'll meet at the tail. And the tail is, of course, the tail of the equestrian statue. King Wenceslas is sitting on a horse. So you'll meet at the tail of the horse. This meeting spot became so popular as a shelling point or focal point, a solution to the coordination problem, that there's actually McDonald's at that corner And people will say, let's meet at the McDonald's at the tail. So Thomas Schelling, in his 1960 book, The Strategy of Conflict, came up with the idea of what he called a focal point, a solution to coordination problems that somehow stands out as the natural answer, even if the participants don't have a chance to arrange it beforehand. Because it's culturally salient, and they both know that other people know that this is an asset that's available for people to coordinate around. Schelling argued that people's ability to coordinate without communicating was key to understanding how real-life strategic games are solved. There's a very nice book by my friend Dan Klein of George Mason, Knowledge and Coordination, on this subject. He argues, and I think Professor Klein is persuasive, much of the work of the Scottish Enlightenment, especially by Adam Smith, should be interpreted as advocating for a presumption of liberty coordinated by a set of rules and norms that are culturally salient. And that's why simply importing the formal rules of Western society alone do not create a market system in a developing country. You need the preconditions, the norms, the ethical dispositions that undergird those rules. Now, I've mentioned on the show before Roger Congleton's book, Solving Social Dilemmas in this regard. And I'll put up a link to both of those two books. So, the solution of let's all drive on the right or let's all drive on the left. That's a coordination problem. We need to find a way to coordinate so that we don't end up driving on the wrong side of the road. That's literally true, but it's also a good metaphor for understanding much of what we need to do to coordinate people's various and sometimes conflicting plans and purposes. So having some principles, ethical principles to coordinate around doesn't really matter if I believe in their deep moral truth. If I just understand that's the way that we do things, if it's a convention in the sense of David Hume, it can be a really important way for solving social problems. Well, this week's letter is from M.Z., Dear Mike, my strong impression from pretty much everyone I know is that it's much harder to find a long-term romantic partner for people living in big cities than it is for people living in smaller towns. This at first seems paradoxical, given the enormous dating pool of the city. After all, there'd be more choices. But I think the answer is transaction cost, because switching from one partner to another who might appear to be superior on the surface is so much easier, which leads many people to constantly switch and therefore never develop deep romantic relationships. So the question is, can you think of examples of the same kind of dynamic in more traditional markets? Are there scenarios where transactions cost actually lead to better outcomes because they create stickiness, like brand loyalty? For example, do they allow some brands to take risks they otherwise couldn't take because they know that their consumers are going to stick around? Well, there's quite a bit there. That's an interesting letter. And we'll discuss all that and more next week on Tidy C.